I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello, and welcome to episode eight of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Dr. Darren Hayes. Darren is a leading expert in the field of digital forensics and cybersecurity. Currently, he's the director of cybersecurity and an assistant professor at Pace University. In 2013, he was listed as one of the top 10 computer forensic professors by forensic colleges. He's developed four distinct courses in digital forensics at the undergraduate and graduate levels. Also through PACE, Darren continually conducts research to support law enforcement agencies, both domestically and internationally. He has successfully been awarded grants in the field of computer forensics by the Department of Defense, National Science Foundation, and other notable foundations. For a number of years, Darren has served on the board of the Northeast Chapter of the High Technology Crime Investigation Association, or the HTCIA, and has also served as that chapter's president. Darren is also an accomplished author with numerous peer-reviewed articles on computer forensics. He has co-authored two textbooks and published A Practical Guide to Computer Forensic Investigations. Darren has appeared on numerous media and news outlets such as Bloomberg Television, The Street, and has been quoted by The Guardian, The Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Forbes, The Washington Post, Wired News, that's just to name a few. Darren has also been very kind and supportive of me in the industry. He's been a gracious host to me when I needed space for the NYC 4SEC meetup groups here in New York City. He's invited me and my staff to pace university security talks and has kept me in the loop with HTCIA happenings. Also, some of his best students have become some of my best employees. In this interview, we will discuss how he supports law enforcement, developing teaching skills, the importance of problem-solving abilities, the challenges when authoring books, misinformation in the media about cybersecurity, gender roles and some of the gender role gaps in information security, foundational skills necessary to be a good information security practitioner, the real-world physical threats from cyber attacks, the brain drain in the government sector, how to learn cybersecurity on a budget, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right. Well, Darren, thank you for joining me on uh, Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Good, thank you. Great. So, you know, one of the things I, I like to ask people that are kind of sitting in your seat on the show, or what, what makes you passionate about cybersecurity? Or what really drives you to be in this industry? I think the first thing is that Every day is is different and exciting, and I deal more on the criminal side. And so I can tell you that, um, you know, supporting law enforcement or different types of federal agencies, um, the types of crimes that they pursue, you know, at the end of the day, when you, you're passionate about a field that makes a difference, um, you can wake up and kind of feel that uh, you're contributing to something meaningful. So tell me a little bit about your background, how you really kind of got started in InfoSec as opposed to anything else that you could have, other paths that you could have taken. Sure. Um, I kind of have a little bit of a, a checkered past in a way, that doesn't mean that in a positive way, but um, <laughs> basically I 
started off with a Bachelor of Arts uh, focusing on history, um, and then I went into the business world. I was in financial services for about a decade, and then I started teaching as an adjunct and started teaching corporate planning and policy, which was kind of a business information systems type course. And then after that, um, I decided I wanted to leave financial services and come and work full time as a professor. And so in the world of academia, uh, given our location in downtown Manhattan, we're very close to the FBI New York field office, we're very close to the Secret Service field office, the NYPD computer crime squad, the Manhattan District Attorney's office. And so we became a focal point for different organizations wanting to come to PACE and carry out training. And so we did a lot of different types of security and forensics training here. So not only did I host many of the meetings and organize the meetings, um, I got to sit in and take part of many of these boot camps. And so I developed a keen interest and knew that this was the future for me. When, when you got to teaching, I mean, how did you kind of develop the skills as a teacher? Was that something that came naturally or was something you had to work on? I think that during my time uh, in financial services, I had done some presentations, I think, which which really, really helped me. Um, I'd also actually been to training where uh, my boss in the financial services industry sent me um, for presentation skills to, it doesn't come naturally to somebody from Ireland. Um, unfortunately, they don't teach it as well as they teach it here in the U.S. So. Um, I got over my M's and R's and started to do, I think, a, a better job in the classroom. Um, so, But I think that overall, I would say that being able to mingle with investigators was critical for me because I was able to pick up investigative skills and not just understand the technical side. And then which it also led me to start... Um, participating in active investigations, and I think that's really, really critical to be a good professor in the academic world is that you can say that you have that ongoing practical experience and know the investigative challenges aside from knowing the technical part of forensics and security. One of the things you mentioned too is you actually said you had a, a Bachelor of Arts in History which is not necessarily a, a technology-related certification, but what are maybe some of the elements that you've uh, either picked up from maybe other disciplines and other courses outside of InfoSec, or outside of InfoSec that helped you in InfoSec? Sure. I, I think that um, when I did my undergraduate in, in history, it was all writing, and it was basically reading... A um, lot of different books, a lot of different articles, and taking that information, synthesizing it into one cohesive thought, argument, uh, theory. And I think that that really has helped me when it comes to investigative report writing. I think especially when you are asked to become an expert witness, your expert report may have all the right evidence, but if you can't word that correctly, um, then a defense attorney is going to pull your argument apart and have a field day with what you wrote. So I think that the history degree has helped me immensely, um, given that I've been able to apply my writing skills. Um, I think that also being in the financial services industry has given me an understanding of financial aspects, um, and so I understand 
bit about industry as well, which I can apply to investigations also. Interesting. And one of the actually going back to some of the courses you've taught, there was a one that caught my eye was problem solving using Lego robotics. Tell me a little bit more about that course and why that. Sure. Uh, actually, it doesn't have a whole lot to do with security or um, computer forensics. Um, really, it's it was a great um, course to teach because at Pace University, undergraduate students can't graduate unless they've done a community service course. So they have to engage with the public. And in that course, um, I taught students how to problem solve with Lego robotics. They learned to program these robots to perform certain challenges. And then they would go to middle schools throughout the New York City area and mentor middle school students who were going to take part in these first Lego League competitions. So it's a very exciting course and, and great to see our students mentor these middle school students. And in, in with that, are there any kind of practical lessons from a class like that, even though it's outside of InfoSec, that could be applied to information security? Definitely. I, I think that the whole idea of problem solving is really key to any kind of investigation or any kind of incident response is that you have to be agile. You have to be able to think on your feet. Um, you walk into a company today to perform an investigation. You don't know what you're going to find. Um, and you don't know where the evidence is going to be. You can't say that uh, I'm going to find this type of evidence today on this type of computer. It never works like that, and things always go wrong in investigations. Yeah. Um, it, and I kind of along those same lines of maybe that we've been talking about a little outside of the box, but you were the author of a practical guide to computer forensic investigations. Uh, you reviewed a several other college textbooks on computer forensics, but I also noticed that you co-authored Skills for Success with Mac uh, Office 2011 and Skills for Success with Access 2010. So again, these aren't InfoSec books per se, and maybe sometimes outside of the uh, box. What drew you to doing maybe that kind of writing and, and contributing in that way as opposed to just strictly with inside a discipline? Sure. I, I think that writing those other types of textbooks really, really helped um, because, first of all, I was mainly a Windows user, and then being asked to write a, a textbook on Microsoft Office for Mac helped me immensely because I got to understand how to use a Mac computer as well as using a Windows computer. So that really helped me. Um, I think that when writing the Practical Guide to Computer Forensics, it was a great experience because I found that a lot of other textbooks were either very technical by people in academia or on the investigative side with not enough of the technical piece. Um, and also I found that a lot of the computer forensics textbooks out there don't deal a lot with mobile forensics. And that's really the heart of forensics today, I think, and the future of forensics is that you can tell so much more about a person's personal life um, from their phone than you can with their laptop or desktop. Yeah, it's part of something we see in investigations a lot, and, and, and where I work is that you know, it's there's small computers always on, connected. They're a great reflection of what, what uh, people do. People check that more than they check anything else. Um, but going back to maybe the book writing, what is some advice you might give to someone who's thinking about writing a book on cybersecurity or maybe another topic that they might be thinking, geez, I don't know if I should do this? I would say be cautious and think it through because um, when I wrote A Practical Guide to Computer Forensics, 
it was four years where you give up your vacations, you give up your weekends, you give up your evenings because basically you have a full-time job, but apart from that full-time job, you've got to use all your extra time to devote to this textbook. And there's very rigid deadlines to meet. Um, so there is always a deadline when you write any kind of book out there, and the publisher is really going to push you to meet those deadlines because they have to get a book to market before um, things change so much, especially in the world of, of IT. So think long and hard about it. Um, it becomes very challenging as well when you have a number of kids. I have four kids, for example. So you've got to think about the sacrifice that you make as well with that. Sure. What were some of maybe the time management skills or, or things that you had to apply to get things done to do that? Sure. Um, I, I think that I've always been a, a self-starter and, and been self-motivated and kind of started from day one when I arrived here in the U.S. with um, $500 in my pocket, no job, and you know, a place to stay for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, I've always been motiva motivated and thought positively about things that could happen for me. So um, I really think that you have to be self-motivated if you're going to write a book because even though you're being pushed to meet deadlines, you're still volunteering time and you have to think that you're going to motivate yourself to complete this task. Mm -hmm. And, you know, going from, from somebody off the boat with $500 in their pocket, you've now kind of grown to be a subject matter expert in cybersecurity and been in various news organizations over the past decade. How did that kind of come about? How did you start with kind of being an extension of the media? Sure. Um, actually, it's, it's kind of unusual because, um, you know, contributing to the media doesn't, doesn't really help in, from an academic perspective. Um, but I do want people to understand some of the challenges that we face in the security industry. Um, and address some of the, sometimes the misinformation that appears in the media about many, many different topics. And I think that, you know, just really trying to get PACE recognized for kind of the great students that we have coming in here. We have over 300 veterans, for example, who have tremendous experience and want to learn cybersecurity skills. and enter back into the government and contribute in this area. What is some of the misinformation that you think that gets out there through the media about security? You know, I had, a, had an interesting conversation with a friend of mine um, actually only yesterday, and we were kind of talking about, you know, everybody talks about Russia and cyber attacks and what Russia is doing, and people forget that a lot of the services are run out of Russia, but there's thousands and thousands of people just in the U United States who use Russia for their proxy services or will purchase malware to distribute um, on different servers here in the United States. So we attribute everything to Russia in terms of many of these cyber attacks, but a lot of people don't realize that many people in the West use Russia as a conduit for these attacks and purchase these services. So many of these these attacks don't begin or initiate uh, from Russia. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've noticed, you, you focus pretty heavily on, on the forensic side of security. Uh, what drew you to that portion of information security as opposed to maybe pen testing or doing more of the offensive security measures? 
I, I think really just um, my association with the Computer Crime Squad, for example, uh, they're, they're all computer forensics investigators. They work on criminal investigations. And I think just the, the, the criminal side and being able to contribute to that, um, for me and, and where I am personally, I, I think that it makes a huge difference. I think especially given the, the fact that Many agencies spend about 60% of their time working on child endangerment cases. And so I think that's tremendous motivation to be involved in digital forensics is that the work that you do can contribute to maybe um, taking a, a sexual predator off the streets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so kind of along that story arc, is how are, who are some of the early mentors that you had coming into forensics that really kind of helped steer you in the right direction? Sure. Uh, I think that there's there's many people. Um, Tom Ryan, for example, he's very active in HTCIA OWASP. Um, he's been a mentor. I think Bernadette Gleason uh, from City. She's involved with the E-Crime Center. She's been a mentor. Um, people like Denise Dragos, um, people, many, many different people. And, and uh, you know, even people like, like you, Doug, who have you know, facilitated many different groups in, in cybersecurity and help share knowledge. I think that this is a very special industry because we all want to help one another for the most part. And I think people are really good when they have a problem that so many people will come onto a blog and, and try and help somebody with an issue that they're having in an investigation or a security problem. And so I think there's something really humane about uh, the security industry. Yeah, that's uh, definitely part of the part of the impetus of the podcast was the con- contributing factor to it and trying to give back because I find you, know, you kind of give to get. The more you, you put out there, you tend to get it back and kind of tenfold um, in returns. And one of the things I know you contribute heavily with is HTCIA. And you mentioned you know, Tom Ryan's involved with that. How did that kind of get involved and what's kind of your role with them now? So um, currently I'm first vice president on the Northeast chapter, um, and then I'll be president next year on the board, um, coming in for a second term because I love the organization. Um, the people are just phenomenal, and I continue, continually learn um, from, from the people who are there. It's just vendor neutral, which means that you're getting the purest kind of updates. You're sharing information, but you're getting a lot of information. Um, it's great for the students that I have because they network with industry professionals who can often help them get internships or full-time positions. Um, it's just really, really good. It's such a rapidly changing industry. It's really important to keep up with the latest trends. So. Um, I'm just honored that I can help in, in a small way to, with this organization. And what's some of the, the kind of goals and hopes that you have for the contributions within side of HTCIA of what you would want to see kind of come out of the participation of yourself and others with organizations like that? Sure. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that I did with HTCIA um, the last time I was president was I had a women of the HTCIA event, and we have a huge problem in terms of dwindling numbers of of women in IT in general. Um, So getting more women involved is really, really important. Encouraging students um, to 
fill many of the gaps in terms of cybersecurity jobs that go unfilled in this country is really, really critical. And so when they go to these meetings at HTCIA, they understand that these companies are crying out for talented people um, to come and work for them. Um, the other thing that you know I, I push with a lot of my students is the importance of getting certifications. And so I tell all my students, the degree is great to have, but try and get at least one certification, which proves to a potential employer that you are competent with using a forensics tool or uh, multiple security tools. And so that's that's one of my wishes as well. And then just having industry experts. I think what's really important um, for people to understand about the HTCIA is that we all have a very diverse set of uh, skills. And so I felt very intimidated at first and, and didn't really want to get involved at a board level with the HTCIA because I didn't have the expertise of many of the people who were there from law enforcement. Um, but I quickly realized that we all have something different to offer. And so some people have great writing skills, some people understand you know, Mac forensics or iOS forensics very much in detail. Some people are great with network forensics. Some people are great with penetration testing. So we all come in with very diverse backgrounds, very disparate uh, skill sets. And so that's really important because everybody has something to offer in this industry. Sure. And I noticed one of the bylaws that that's kind of been a, somewhat of an online controversial thing over over time. Uh, was there was a there's a restriction for HCCI members from doing criminal defense work, and I'm sure that's not just a flippant ad hoc decision. But can you tell me a little bit about that decision and, and what led to that, and kind of why? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting, and I have different thoughts on this matter. I think the idea is that. If you're a member of the HTCIA, you probably don't want to be in, end up in a capacity where you're defending a criminal that, you know, another member of a chapter is trying to prosecute. And so you kind of wonder if the, the information that you're learning from um, the HTCIA is going to benefit you in terms of prosecuting, you know, a good criminal and that you know all of the tricks of the trade, so to speak. Having said that, um, my other opinion is, you know, when you think about criminal defense, you have to think th about the fact that the second president of the United States was, did criminal defense, where he basically defended um, soldiers of the British Army. And so we have to put things into perspective. It's an important part of the legal system is that everybody does have defense. And I think that if you do your job right, if you have your report in order and you did your, your due diligence, your report and the evidence that you find should stand on its own merit and you shouldn't have to worry about criminal defense attorneys. Mm -hmm. in, in some of the other contributions you did that I'd noticed, um, there was a, a class that you kind of helped administer and develop for computer forensic curriculum for a number of high schools in New York City. Um, tell me a little bit how that developed and how was that received at the, the high school level? Sure. So originally, I didn't develop this uh, relationship from the start. It was Dean Jonathan Hill here. Um, but after that, you know, I was asked to help 
continue the development of the curriculum with many different high schools um, through what's called the Justice Resource Center, and Deborah Lesser has been spearheading that remarkable um, um, curricula and the teacher, coordinating the teachers, coordinating the students with tremendous events everywhere from moot court here in, in New York City schools to traveling to The Hague in the Netherlands. Um, but I think that it's really important that at the high school level, we're bringing awareness about cybersecurity and computer forensics and getting students interested, energized about these topics and thinking about careers in this industry. Is there an age that you think is, is too early to start with, with these types of uh, skills around InfoSec or is there a, kind of a breaking point? <laughs> I, I think that um, you could even think about cybersecurity and computer forensics at middle school level. Um, when you think about what they're doing in Israel, for example, where at teenage level they have pinpointed certain very talented students who can enter into a very meaningful cybersecurity career with um, the military. Um, they have got it right. They are a, a huge hub now of cybersecurity companies. Um, and think tanks, and I think that we have to really think about that kind of model here in the U.S. where we're identifying students in their teenage years who would be good for a career in cybersecurity. I'm not saying building cyber warriors um, for the future at a young age, but, you know, basically tapping into their interests and their skill set. Yeah, there seems to be in that continued... Um reports year after year of not enough people in in information security there's too many open jobs um and obviously what with what you're doing here at the collegiate level of trying to get people trained up what are some of the the hurdles that you think that we really need to clear to start you know trying to close that gap and then what are some of the things that we could be doing better to shore that up sure um I think that really on the technical side, we have to be very careful and make sure that we're giving our students um, the important basics. So what I mean by that is that our students understand very well about hardware, about operating systems, about file systems, about how servers work. Sometimes we're so focused on client computers and client devices that we forget about working with servers or with RAID systems, which can be a, a real challenge for any forensics investigator or any security person d dealing with incident response. Um, programming can be really, really helpful um, because you can do everything from program a new database to Python scripting for scraping darknet sites. Um, understanding Linux is really important, that you can work with both servers and you can use that Linux experience to also run grep searches through hard drives, but you can also work with Android devices. Um, so I think that a lot of people come into this kind of um, topic thinking that it's all about investigative skills and don't understand the technical piece and how critical the technical piece is. And to illustrate that, when you are asked to become an expert witness, they're going to test you on your technical knowledge. And it's not just about the process and the standard operating procedures that you followed. You really need to understand 
the hardware and the software behind what you were working with. Definitely. And one of the things that I've noticed that you, you've commented on before and you brought up before, uh, earlier in, in, in this discussion was that certainly around not enough um, kind of women in information security and technology. Why do you think that continues to still kind of be a challenge and what are some of the things that we can do to encourage, you know, maybe 51% of the other population to, to be more involved? So, uh, yeah, I, I think that there's there's no easy answer. I think that, you know, there's still, unfortunately, this stereotype of the geeky type um, person who spends all their time in, in their mom's basement on the computer playing games and, and trying to hack devices or that kind of thing. So we've got to get past that stereotype and show how cool computing can be. So it doesn't matter whether you're designing a website or whether you're, you know, trying to do some pen testing. Um, we've got to continue to make it exciting and show that, um, you know, when you come out of school, there's, there's really um, tremendous opportunities. And so I think people don't realize that even in the world of computer forensics, you can end up working for a private company, you work, work in the public sector, you can work with fraud division of a bank. Um, there's so many different directions that you can go. And it's the same in security is that um, people don't realize the range of different job opportunities out there. And I think that if we make do a better job of explaining all the range of options that will attract more women. We certainly have to have a lot of events where we encourage women to participate. Um, women have a very different perspective sometimes on security. And the more perspectives that you have from different genders, um, from different ethnicities, the more successful you will be as a nation in computing. Yeah, my, my father was actually a, a teacher at Marist College, and one of the things that he taught was uh, you know, gender roles in the workplace and that there is a, you know, there's certain gender bias that go into decision making, not good or bad. It's just understanding how those, uh, how, how those biases affect decision making and how to kind of align it. But it's, it's, it's actually better to have more and different and unique inputs kind of coming in on a problem than, um, than just one. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I mean, one specific area I, I can just tell you is that I can't design for my life. So, um, you know, I understand a lot of the technology and the back-end stuff of, of web technologies, um, but I'm not a great website designer. But there are many women who are absolutely phenomenal with web design and with uh, UX, user, user experience. Um, and I just see such tremendous work in the design field by, by many women in computing today. But there's many great women in security. There just aren't enough, unfortunately. Yeah, and I, I hope actually to get get some more women on the podcast too, because I think there's that there's that that view that oh well, there's just not there's not a lot of people out there that are women in, in information security. I think there's plenty that just may not be getting um, the right recognition at certain times. I'll, I'll give you a funny story, and this is kind of how sometimes women's minds work differently. I, w I was called as a juror to a case, and. And the judge mentioned, um, when he was speaking to all of us, he said, I'd like to ask the jury after a case why they came to a particular decision in a case. And I was surprised because in one particular case, there was a, a case involving insurance fraud. And the women afterwards were undeniably convinced that this woman was um, perpetrating 
insurance fraud. And he said, why? I, I don't understand. She seemed very convincing. And, and they noticed that she was wearing high heels to court every day. And if you had back problems and you were suffering, you wouldn't do that. And of course, a guy would never notice mm-hmm. something small like that. Yeah. And, and it, but that's, that's such a great view because it was something when I was preparing for early on in my, my career with expert witness work too, was, you know, the ties you wear and the aesthetics, all that plays into it. And it's true if you have too much of a kind of a myopic or only looking at half of it from, from a specific gender point of view, you're going to very likely miss other aspects of how uh, that, that could be influenced. But also in the, you know, when it comes to kind of filling some of the gaps of the overall job shortages. I mean, certainly in the recent uh, 2016 presidential election, there was a lot of focus on immigration. Do you see that there is a potential to kind of hurt ourselves as Americans to kind of limit some of the abilities for people to come in, maybe from overseas that have some of these talents to work in the United States if we're going to kind of have that stiff arm approach to immigration? Sure. Um, I I definitely think that of course, I'm biased coming from, from Ireland, but... That's <laughs> kind of an unfair question as an immigrant, but yeah. But I did hear a statistic that 50% of technology companies in Silicon Valley were started or co-founded by immigrants. And so that's really, really important to understand. I think another thing to understand is, I think I heard a statistic about something like 67% of those with PhDs in math and science... Um, come from somewhere else. They weren't born here. And that's not, don't get me wrong, that's not like something bad about the educational system. Actually, it's it's something quite different. In Europe, where there's high unemployment rates, you see a lot of students who continue to do their master's and then on to their doctoral and then postdoctoral. And so because of lack of jobs, they really continue in education and because education is free. So a lot of people misconstrue that kind of statistic. But it's important that you can attract people at a doctoral level who may add another dimension to the world of security or computer forensics that you can get that well-educated pipeline here. So keeping the immigration flow going is really, really important, I think. Um, Also, just the whole idea of intelligence gathering. I mean, this is a country built on immigration. We have millions and millions of visitors coming to this country. And so it's important that we understand threats through social media and any type of cyber intelligence gathering. And for that, you need bilingual, trilingual people who can help you with that threat intelligence. And so we really need to continue to support um, people with cybersecurity skills um, who are immigrants to this country. Mm-hmm. Also in the past, uh, the the election cycle, cybersecurity certainly became more of a hot-button topic. What changes culturally do you think have kind of occurred, or maybe why why is this suddenly pushed into such a larger spotlight? And we've known about card scams and other things that have happened for years, but what what are some of the things now that you think it's really kind of made it part, part of the overall cultural zeitgeist? I, I think that there's, there's a couple of things. First of all, we've seen um, in traditional criminal activity across Europe and across the United States, traditional organized criminal gangs involved in human trafficking, burglary, um, carding schemes, uh, they've added to their portfolio, um, you know, malware, they've added um, hacking, 
because there's a huge amount of money that can be made. And so traditional crime has moved to the cyber world. I think the other thing is that a number of different events worldwide have really prompted government to rethink their policies and understand deficiencies in critical infrastructure in, in the United States. And so when we saw black energy malware, which took down electricity for 800,000 people in Ukraine, or we saw 30,000 computers destroyed at Aramco, or we saw the North Korean attack on Sony, we understood the potential for even loss of life or immense destruction with malware. And so we have a very, very large critical infrastructure, which includes healthcare, the electrical grid, financial services. And so the threat of malware and state-sponsored sophisticated attacks is really, really important. And it's not something that you can thwart by having the latest intrusion detection system or a great firewall those aren't going to protect you anymore. And so we have to have the brightest minds actually dedicated to protecting the critical infrastructure of this country, which affects the administration and the government directly. Yeah, and when we look at some of these you know, 2016 hacks, and whether it be black energy or uh, alleged at, at attacks by the Russians on the uh, Democratic Party. Do we really think that the full impact of these hacks have been fully understood or appreciated yet? Yeah, it, it's interesting because I, I actually mentioned this to somebody recently. I said that, you know, if if there had been voting machines that had been infiltrated, we probably wouldn't know for months to come. And it's just like intrusions today is that you know, companies often get a lot of blame for not alerting their customers to a breach that occurred three years ago, but probably they don't know when it occurred, they don't know um, the extent of the intrusion, and we're basically trying to make a best effort at guessing the extent of a breach and when it occurred. And so I think that's really important to understand. And kind of you know, with that, with the, with the kind of rapid news cycle that we have, is there? Do you share any of my fears potentially that you know we might forget about some of this? That we'll get three months down the road, we passed uh, maybe some of the holiday periods when we're recording this, but you know, come come early 2017, some of this might be a distant memory as we move on to the next crisis, and the right attention and focus might not kind of come back to some of the cybersecurity issues. Yes, I, I think so. I think that. That um, one of the one of the problems today is that we're very short term in our thinking, and it's kind of I hear this expression overused, but whack-a-mole is that we're trying to kind of deal with the latest threat. Threat, and the problem is that we're always a couple of steps behind the hackers. Um, I think that the most worrying thing for 2017 is probably going to be. Um, like the crypto locker type of ransomware um, that we're dealing with, which has been so successful. Um, it's so well-funded because the ransoms are so high, and so these organizations that run these ransomware schemes um, make millions and therefore can hire the most skilled hackers to do this. And so companies haven't thought about, number one, what their crown jewels are, they don't know often where those are. There are companies there that have out there that have hundreds of thousands of servers and don't know where all their information is. And there's no contingency planning. 
And so this is about business continuity ransomware and how many companies have really thought about mapping out a plan for when they get hit with ransomware, what they're going to do. Invariably, a company that's hit calls up, scrambles to ask everybody, do they pay the ransom? What do they do? How do we handle this with PR? Um, this is a, a huge problem that people aren't planning for. Yeah, um, unfortunately, I, I get those phone calls generally around 5 o'clock on most Fridays, you know, which, you know, goes to the mindset of the attackers. They know when to skillfully launch these attacks to kind of monopolize on it and, and, and stir the panic at the right time. Um, but further looking into 2017, we have a new president coming in. And what are some of the pieces that you think you would like to see implemented as part of kind of the executive branch's strategy for improving the nation's cybersecurity? So I, I think critical infrastructure is is up there, definitely, and that is definitely the prerogative of the current administration, that they have to make sure that we're getting enough people into government who um, understand the issues. There's also this problem with the brain drain. So I see so many agencies where you have people with great cybersecurity skills who are moving to private industry and making a lot of money. And they're actually getting the government to pay them to do work for them, but in a different capacity. So we have this brain drain. It's because a lot of people in cybersecurity and the government are not being paid enough. We're not addressing that problem. And we're also not hiring people quickly enough. So I was at a recruitment event not so long ago um, where it it was for our students and Department of Homeland Securities, and they did a terrific job with trying to recruit our students, but somebody on the panel said, you know, I submitted my resume and it took five years for me to get a call back. So my advice to you is be patient out there. Um, the problem is that a lot of graduate students can't be patient because they're coming out with $100,000 worth of debt and student loans. And so they have to get a job maybe developing a mobile application and don't have the time to wait for a call from the FBI or from another agency. And so I think that we need to really think about speeding up the process, maybe even helping some students with their college loans. Um, that's really, really important is that um, government understand how important it is to get the talent quickly. And, and when it comes to the type of talent that we need to develop, you know, certainly you might be a little more biased towards forensics and IR, but between IR, forensics, pen testing, auditing, what are some of the skill sets that you think we need to have uh, further developed or maybe have more in demand? Probably the, the number one skill set, I would say, is reverse engineering malware and understanding malware. Um, we actually started working on a project, um, and it was came from a request from a Fortune 100 company who asked me to do a presentation on reverse engineering mobile malware and mobile malware threats. And I thought, oh, this will be easy because, you know, I have a little bit of experience, not a lot, but I know lots of people who do this for a living. I know companies that, that reverse engineer malware for a living. And when I started talking to different people, all the people I spoke to had never touched mobile malware. And mobile malware is a huge problem. It's an underestimated problem. And it's 
an unquantifiable problem because we don't have proper intrusion detection systems for phones. We don't have proper antivirus, we don't have proper security for our phones, and therefore it goes underreported, unrecognized, and it's a huge problem. But malware as a whole is a really, really important concept that we should be teaching more in the classroom. Um, we've already seen so many threats from malware. We know the billions of dollars um, that are derived from malware on networks, and so it's really, really important that we understand that we need to train students and employees in reverse engineering malware. Definitely. And when, when I guess when students do come up to you and now kind of ask you for career advice, what's, the co what's a common question that a lot of them kind of come up to you and ask you about, about getting started in the field? It, there is no one answer. I think that it's, it's very difficult. And the challenge is that a lot of students come in and they say, oh, I've heard that cybersecurity is, is a hot field now. I want to switch my major or I want to move away from accounting and become a cybersecurity expert. And so it's hard to start that person off and tell them this is what you need to do. Um, what I do tell them is there are a couple of, of classes that they could take. I tell them to join organizations. I tell them to get certifications, do the certification exams. I tell them to apply for internships. I tell them I know you have big student loans, but in the world of cybersecurity or forensics, you may have to take a really good internship that doesn't pay you anything, and, and it's actually an out-of-pocket cost for you. Um, but really, at the end of the day, I think what's really critical about understanding this industry is that you have to have your own drive. You have to have your own interest in pursuing a, pers a particular part of security or forensics. And so if you don't find where your passion is, you're just going to be another average worker in the industry. Um, to give you an example, I had a student here who was really interested in Android phone forensics. But he ran with the ball. He stayed many hours in this lab and became a real expert and surpassed my knowledge in the world of Android forensics, which is great. That's what I love to see, students who surpass my knowledge. And he went into an internship, and they found that they could not do without him because he added a new dimension and a new skill set that they just didn't have there. And even though that organization really didn't have the budget, they made sure that they were able to hire this person because of the extra skill set that this person added. But again, it came from a very self-motivated, ambitious person who found his passion in, in a particular area. And I think that that's important is that you have to have a student who is willing to learn things through YouTube or, or learn a skill set on their own. It's thinking outside the box, thinking outside the course, thinking outside the book. Um, just running with something and working on something new. Gotcha. And if you could say, well, there, there, maybe try to even boil it down further, do you think there's a most important skill someone really needs to develop for cybersecurity? One skill set. That's that's very, very difficult. Maybe the, yeah. Yeah, the kind of 80-20 rule. If there's one that's going to have the biggest impact and, and somebody can say, you know, I really need to try to focus on, the, on something that's going to give me the most amount of leverage. 
Um, I, I would say, you know, first of all, understand that cybersecurity doesn't have to be expensive. You, it's free to learn. Um, just all those videos from, from DEF CON, for example, they're on, on the website. You can get them for free. You don't have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to go there. Um, you can get a Raspberry Pi for about $40. You can get there's, um, a pen testing distribution that you can put on a, a micro SD card, put it into that Raspberry Pi, and away you go. You can start learning all Wireshark, all the, the pen testing tools. Um, yeah, tools like, like Wireshark, Metasploit, all of the great tools out there, not all of them, but a lot of them are free. And so there are no barriers to entry. I think that's really, really important to understand. Gotcha. No, I think that's, that's great too. Yeah, a lot of it, I think, you know, from when maybe you and I started years ago, it was, it was definitely a little bit harder. We, the amount of hardware we'd have to get and the amount that you can get on, you know, a good MacBook Pro with a bunch of virtual machines, you, you can pretty much simulate a pretty, pretty decent lab environment that we only wish we had 10 years ago. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so kind of maybe if you were looking back in time and you, and you can, you can go back and, and, tell yourself some advice from when you first came came here with that $500 in your pocket, what would be the, the single piece of advice or maybe a couple pieces of advice you would give that Darren Hayes? Um, I, I think that initially I tried to follow the money and um, brokerage industry in, in Ireland where I came from is a lot different from here. It's a lot, uh, much more cutthroat. Um, you know, I, I think that that was definitely not the industry for me. So unfortunately, I had preconceived ideas about what I wanted to do and didn't think about trying a few different jobs in different areas um, to understand better. I think that if you go to school here and you can do different internships, it's not just about finding what you like. It's about a process of elimination and finding out what you don't like. Um, when I moved from financial services, I, I took a very big pay cut. I still miss those Christmas bonuses, um, but I'm extremely happy with what I do. And you definitely don't want to be waking up one day when you're 40, 50 years old wondering, did I really pick the right career? Um, it's possible in this work environment to find something that you're passionate about. I've haven't met people in this industry, computer forensics or security, um, who hate their jobs. Um, they get excited to talk about the challenges. And I think that's really what's what's unique about security forensics is that people want to talk about what they do and in a positive way. And in, they talk about their challenges in an interesting way. And that, you know, that's one thing that seems to come up time and time again is that you have people who enjoy challenges, who want to dig a little deeper, who want to answer questions. Um, it's something about IT in general, I think. And so I, I think that I didn't understand what my, what my um, calling was, and I've had a diverse type of education and work experience, um, but it's never too late to change your career. It's never too late. I obviously had to put a lot of time into going back to school and doing my master's, which was very, very challenging. And then doing a doctorate when I had a wife and children, which was even more challenging. There's a lot of sacrifices involved, but um, 
you just got to find your passion, and this is definitely a great industry for finding your passion. Yeah, certainly. So I think there, there's that maybe my, my preconceived notion that's incorrect that there's certainly you deal mostly with I would say younger people you know being being in my early 40s myself that I'll, I'll discount that to anybody in their their uh, early 20s um, but I'm sure there's plenty of people that you deal with that are maybe at, a, at an older age or maybe a different part of their their life and different part of their journey and, and what's some of the advice you would give to someone who is a little bit you know Maybe a little bit older. They're not just out of the going from one college to another, going from a college to a master's program, but they've been in the workforce for a couple of years and feel like they've kind of gotten into a rut um, and want to change either where they are in cybersecurity or get into cybersecurity. What? How would you kind of steer them? Sure. Um, I, I would. I, you know, I'm a little bit biased, so I'd probably tell them to to maybe come to Pace University or go to college. Um, but also take a look for these mass online courses. You know, they're, they're free. Um, people offer them. Um, YouTube has tremendous videos. Um, for example, when my students are doing their ACE certification and FTK, you know, the videos are out there. They have everything that they need for the study guide for that exam, which is free to take. Um, I would say that, you know, get a couple of devices, start tinkering with them. Um, look at some DEFCON videos. Um, I would say, you know, there's there's definitely a way where you can break into this industry and you're, you're never too old. Um, I think I'm at an advantage because, number one, I'm with young people who can tell me about the latest apps that the young people are using, which I don't always know about. And so their perspective on technology is a lot different. So I feel that I'm really at an advantage there but they are often much better at thinking outside the box as well and so that's important um i i think that you know it's really great talking to the veterans because they come in with a different perspective we often think well if it's if it's at uh, tiger direct or amazon it's not there then you know we're probably not going to find what we want and when i see these guys jerry rig something and they can do jtag for 50 bucks on an android phone i realize that um you know people with different skill sets you need to be around those kinds of people who add a new dimension to your thought process and what you're trying to accomplish so um yeah anybody who's in their their you know, at a different stage in their life, it's never too old because there are so many unfilled jobs and the unemployment r- rate in cybersecurity is, I think, 0% or something? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, um, I think, a challenge to, to fill those roles, but there's, I think there's a lot of leverage that we underappreciate, particularly myself as a hiring manager at times. Um, there's a lot of other skills from different walks of life that actually contribute to the growth of the industry and, and making me a better person as a manager and, and, and other people on the team by bringing in those different types of uh, skill sets. That's it's encouraging to hear. Well, I, I thank you uh, for your time today, Darren. Is is What are some of the other things that you're up to these days, maybe some other types of research, working on another book or anything like that? Or um, So <clears throat> there's a few different things that we're working on. We're, we're continuing to work on the mobile malware because we think it's important. Um, chip off on phones uh, has become critical given you know full disk encryption on Android devices and the challenges with the iPhone. So we are doing many different um, types of things in that area. 
we're doing a lot of research in terms of Silk Road type marketplaces on the dark web and we've been able to successfully do a lot of um, web scraping of those sites and uncovering some really, really interesting information. So we've been able to partner with a number of different agencies on, on some different work. Also, um, a lot of my work in forensics more recently has kind of branched out more into the intelligence side. And so concerns for ISIS have prompted a lot of our research to move in a different direction as well. So it's funny how, you know, you move from investigations and pure computer forensics and finding solutions that end up in a, in a courtroom to kind of um, the growing need, and I think it's going to be a growing need of the, the incoming administration of um, intelligence gathering for, you know, jihadi threats or other types of threats. Uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, militant type. It's, it's just threats of, you know, uh, intellectual property theft, um, but also we've done research in the area of critical infrastructure. We've been able to look just at open source information and been able to very well um, profile a company, very large electrical company on the electrical grid here in the United States. Their network and their employees and the internet of things is just going to make the whole notion of intelligence gathering, threat monitoring, really, really important. Mm-hmm. Well, great. And uh, where can people find you online or on, on, on the, maybe not the dark web, but the, the light web? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you can, you can always um, contact me at dhays at pace.edu. Um, also at seidenberg.pace.edu, you'll find some profile information for, for me out there. Um, there's, there's lots of ways. You just do a search for me and, and you'll find me. Great. I'll put some of that information in the show notes. Well, uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And thank you for your time today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.